In this episode, we get to talk to a couple of professionals. We have a professor in our computer science department, Catherine Walker, and we have Lisa Madrona, who is the instructional designer for our career education program. And they join us to talk more about UDL, Universal Design for Learning and Accessibility. Right on. Uh, uh, Sean, before we get to that, though, I have a question for you. All right, what you got, Curry? All right, man. So I've been thinking about, this might seem random, but I've been thinking about this a lot since our last episode. And my question is, how important is note-taking to you as a learner, uh, maybe a teacher, but I want to start with like, as a learner, maybe way back when you were a student or even like just, you know, in meetings or courses you're taking now, how important is note-taking to you? Note-taking is really important to me. I love note-taking. I, Whenever I'm in a meeting for any kind of committee, work group, whatever, I always volunteer myself to be the note-taker. And I think it's just so I can stay engaged. Um, I could record what everybody's saying and, and put it into my own words. And that benefits the group. So I feel like I'm doing a service to everybody. But, you know, especially in the Zoom world, I'm like, this is a way that I can keep my attention on, on the task at hand. And um, yeah, and it's something that I encourage with my students, but I probably don't teach the techniques part of it as much as I should. So what do you like? You? So, oh man, me too. Like I, I uh, as a as a student, I took all kinds of notes. I had a spiral bound notebook for every course on its own. I, I never did like the three divide for multiple courses. It's this this blue ones for math, this red ones for English, whatever. Um, mm -hmm. And but. You know, as a student, I don't know if I had a style or a technique. I would say it probably was free flowing from kind of one course to another. Um, how about you? Do you have a, a like a go to style that really works for you? You know, no. I when when as a learner, when when I'm not doing the committee stuff, when I'm in meetings, yes, I kind of do it in a format that will be understandable to someone else. Yep. When it's for me, it just has to be understandable to me. And the thing about the notes too, I'll say real quick, is like I don't even really. I might not even ever revisit the notes. It's just the exercise of doing that that is really important to me and and I feel helps me stay engaged again. So, but no, there's no structure to it. I'm writing all over the page. I use Google Docs a lot more now because we're more kind of screen reliant and and it just makes it easier to do it that way, but when I'm doing it in a notebook, it's like I may have drawings, I may just circle something, I'm writing not inside the lines at all. So I'm all over the place with it. It it, it wouldn't help anybody except yeah, for me. Yeah. <laughs> well, so that's interesting. So that's my second question. Um, do you think there's value in sharing notes? Um, and, and I guess now I want to shift a little bit to like us thinking as teachers. Do you think there's value in encouraging our students to take notes? I think we've established that, but then share them like, like collaborative note taking or social note taking. What have you thought about that or, or what? What do you think about that? I have, but maybe not in the context of notes in the traditional thinking of that, but more in the style of annotation and yeah. and collaborative annotation. So if they're reading a text, you know, and and highlighting something and putting a comment to the side and then being able to see what their peers are saying about that. I think that that works much in the way of a discussion, but in an asynchronous format. And that could be really helpful because you may be reading through the text, get a certain idea about what it means to you, but yeah. to get the annotations and, and be able to see what other people are thinking about those same lines adds perspectives. And I don't think that's ever a bad thing. 
Yeah, I th and I think that's really exciting. And I think so software like Hypothesis or Perusal, you know, mm -hmm. so especially online asynchronous where you kind of have this sort of um, thinking prints, right? Like f like fingerprints of, of what I was thinking on the page. I can see the, the student that was there before me and then I leave my own, this sort of layered text, right? Of, of, of response to um, what's written. But I so two things though, I think are really exciting about this. Um, one, you said just the act of note taking, it, it automatically engages me more so than just sort of passive reception, whether I'm reading or listening or, or whatever it is, right? So that that taking notes engages me more. But then also you said it's it's in my own language and that's really powerful, I think. And, and so th this is why I've been thinking about this. Uh, uh, Aaron Holmes in, our, in the last episode we recorded, he was talking about you know, the universal design for learning practices. If we, if we really embrace them, we get out ahead of these mandated checklists that are imposed upon us. Like we're told right. you have to do this. And if we've really been practicing UDL, we turn around and we realize, oh, that, that's already there. Um, right. um, I think with note-taking and the potential of social note-taking, there's something there that achieves this, a similar outcome. Um, if, 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 we're, if we're not only encouraging our students to take notes and not only training them or offering them sort of different styles or different techniques, um, maybe not even, and, and maybe going further than that and like, like, like awarding points or sort of centralizing note-taking as an assignment in our class. But if we go even further to, to make notes something that's shared, then we get out ahead of, of the need for things like note takers, but also we set up our students as, you know, sources of like knowledge generators, right? It's this in your words made more sense to me than in the professor's words, kind of, kind of an experience with, with content. So that's kind of where I'm thinking. Um, and if you add to that, you know, in addition to text-based notes, maybe they record a short audio clip, maybe they put a video, maybe they throw an image in there right embed an image in in this note-taking process then it feels a lot less transactional than the traditional discussion board that we see in the online learning format right and and it's like two replies and I, i'm guilty of this i'm going to say that for those of you that think i'm saying something uh, you know insulting people who do that i do two replies to each pose kind of thing but i do feel like it is transactional and and it, it lacks some authenticity that you would get in a back and forth discussion that feels more real and that you know you would bring in these other sources and these other ideas that come in different mediums right absolutely yeah and 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 there's lots of we we don't need to get too much into the details here but i think just so conceptually it's something i'm really excited about and i'm thinking about and i think you know it, it reminds me of the study group kind of you know a, a, a form when we're on site on campus five students deciding to hang out after class and share their notes like that but i think there's way you're what you're saying earlier about like social annotation that's an asynchronous version of that study group, right? And so I think there's ways also to extend a discussion board over multiple weeks. And you're not writing paragraphs in that space, you're just annotating each other's initial thoughts, right? Just, just expanding notes on notes on notes on notes as we get our heads around these concepts. So, so I, I wanted to bring that up before this conversation with Catherine and Liesel, because we are talking about equity-minded teaching and accessibility. And so we really want to get we want to combine these things under that UDL umbrella and get at that kind of that culture of, 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 of shared resources, student generated resources, collaboration, um, in addition to kind of the nuts and bolts of equity minded teaching and accessibility. 
Yeah, and it's really exciting stuff. I, I like what we have coming up here because we have the in the classroom, these are things that you can do to promote both universal design for learning and um, or using universal design for learning for equity-minded projects with what Catherine talks about. And then Liesl comes in with what the process looks like when you're designing a course with accessibility in mind and what that um, does in terms of working towards this idea of equity in an online space. So we, we have a good conversation ahead of us. Awesome, right on, let's get to it. All right. So universal design for learning is, is, is described as a process, a philosophy, a set of principles, but sometimes, at least for me, um, so when I'm going through Canvas and I click that little man in the circle, I, I don't feel like I'm engaging with the philosophy. I feel like I'm just doing stuff. I'm just sort of following some policies or some procedures. And, and so I'm wondering, Lisa, how, how do you think of uni universal design for learning more of a philosophy, more of a set of policies? What, what, what's your position uh, in that space? Yeah, yeah, that's, that's a great question. So when I think of universal design for learning, I'm thinking about this in, in a framework. It's an educational framework, and it's, it's based on that research in the learning sciences. Um, it, it talks about a little bit of the development and the flexibility of the learning development or learning environments and the learning spaces that we create for our students. So, um, you know, when I think of in, um, as an instructional designer, Okay, and someone who designs instruction right, courses, uh, I think about the end target audience. Who is our end target audience? And I, I think about our students. So who are your students? Who are students? Can you describe your student? It's, it's atypical because they come from different cultures, right? Like different cultures, different abilities, expressions. Uh, they have different ways to express. I, uh, they may, might have different preferences in learning. Um, so I think about the success of, of my students and I try to encourage them um, through individual choice and autonomy. Um, it's kind of like when you walk into a clothing store, you know, you expect there to be choices, different colors, different sizes. But what if you walked into a clothing store that just had one style, one, one style of t-shirt? You know, that, that gives us zero opportunity for expression. Um, we only have one choice. And in terms of course design, I kind of like to give our learners different ways to interact and express. Um, so I guess going to your question, I, I think about it as a framework. How can we encourage this, this sort of free-flowing expression, different ways of um, engaging and representing the content and communicating with our students i just yeah the, does that <laughs> help <laughs> no that that totally helps and i just thought when you were doing the the, the store analogy i was like that that's a that's communism but anyway um <laughs> I, I with that though when you're working with a faculty member and you know they're pretty much used to doing things in a certain way and, and you're designing this course with them maybe especially at a time like now we're in 2020 and people are pivoting online more than ever and um, they they may want to do things as they were doing it before. How do you introduce new things to them for them to um, maybe add that variety to, to accommodate for 
different types of learners in their assignments and even their content. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah. Uh, before I, I go into my spiel, I just want to say in any type of course design, the first thing I love to say is have patience, okay? Course design takes time. There's definitely a process and development. I think of course design like baking a cake, right? So we have specific ingredients that we need, milk, uh, flour, obviously you can tell I've never baked a cake, but I know that there's specific <laughs> ingredients that we need, eggs, okay, um, to make said cake, okay, bake it. So course design is very similar where there are these elements that time and time again, we know works for our students' success. So when we have those ingredients and we have the process of like typing it in and building out in Canvas, there's a process, every cake, every course is going to look different. So you might have a chocolate cake, you might have a science class that might have uh, be broken down into modules of like different labs instead of one week equals one module or one module equals two weeks, right? It's going to look a little bit different because it's a, a different course, right? It depends on the discipline, the preferences, whatever the course needs. Um, so it, that takes time. That takes time and it takes a lot of patience too. So I know we pivoted online. It was insane. It's still insane. So I just like to tell everybody, just be patient with the process. Um, let me go ahead and just give you like my student experience, um, a student perspective. So I barely share this because, you know, who wants to talk about our student days? But um, when I was doing undergrad a long, long time ago, uh, it was cell and molecular biology and uh, a minor in chemistry. So I just remember way back in my days, we used to use something called scantrons to do our test. In the before times when we used to go outside. Um, so we, it was definitely a, a certain way of doing things, right? But one day there was this biochemist teacher and I thought I was gonna fail biochemistry, but this teacher turned it around for me. Let me tell you what, um, he gave something called Pogles. Are you familiar with Pogles? No. No, okay. Oh, Catherine, you're shaking your head. Yes, Pogles. <laughs> so what are Pogles? Um, Geez, what are pogles? Can, Catherine, can you can you give us a definition of a of a pogle? <laughs> I don't remember what these the letters stand for. Yeah, neither do uh, I. But yeah, so it's it's a way of teaching where it's project oriented. Oh, I think that's the PO. Okay. Uh, oh, yes. And it's it divides this this larger task into these kind of steps, and every group member has a role and a responsibility uh, in that group. And together, it, it's it's not just group work, it really is like true collaboration is the goal of them. Yeah. Um, mm -hmm. And it focuses the attention on like solving some sort of larger issue or problem. Uh, and, and through discovering that solution, you learn all of these other skills along the way. Yes. So yes. You said pogles after us talking about scantrons. I thought this was going to be another like quizzy thingy, doodly, whatever these things are, right? No, but this is like a philosophy. This is like a pedagogy. It's a, an approach to teaching. Mm-hmm. Mm -hmm. yeah. Absolutely. Okay. I, yes. I pulled it up in real time here. So process-oriented guided inquiry learning. Ooh. Ah. Yeah, pogles a lot easier than that. That's good. Yeah. Yeah. Yes. 
Yes, and so Pogel, it really differs from other approaches, uh, other instructional approaches in two ways. So um, the first is that it's pretty explicit. So just like what Catherine was saying, um, it's, it, it's explicit and it's pretty conscious. It has this conscious emphasis of developing those essential and purposeful uh, processing skills. So I can't just choose A, B, or C, right? I have to actually apply what I've learned. Um, so in this biochemistry class, we would have these worksheets. So they're about like two to five worksheets. And uh, they were just real world uh, um, problem sets, uh, biochemistry sets. Like for example, and this may not be an appropriate one, but it was so real, okay? Not that I have any familiarity with it, but there was this one question I'll just never forget. So, um, so uh, 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 I don't know, Sean was walking down the street and uh, you know, he had a very long night of hard drinking and so he decided to go to sleep. So um, explain the metabolic pathways that are occurring and some of the, um, some of the, uh, the factors that are, that are uh, coming into play at, at a molecular level. And I was like, mind blown, okay, uh, did we just talk about um, somebody getting drunk. Um, yeah, I'm, I'm a little bit, you know, I, I acknowledge, I know that people do that in the real world, but wow, that is a real world um, uh, problem set that, yes, I knew what was happening at a molecular level and I was able to explain it in that problem set. So as a group, we had to formulate our answer and we would have the recorder write down our answers and then we would have the person who um, has to talk about the answers to the class share our answers. Um, and, and that was a very uh, important uh, learning experience for me because I actually felt like for the first time in, in my undergrad career that what I was learning actually applied to real life, further motivating me, right? Okay, so now I want to learn a little bit more what is happening because that's, that's what, we, what we do. We love to learn why the way things are as people. Yeah. Uh, Sean, you were implicated in Liesl's example there. Uh, do you want to respond to that at all, or, um, or just let it go? No, you know, I, I I think that that's that's just an unfortunate example. But it could have been like Sean spelled S H A W N. So it it totally was. It yeah. was Sean I, with no, a H A W N. Right. <laughs> and so, Catherine, um, with universal design for learning and kind of these real world. Um, experiences when teaching our students i feel like it's inherent in your area with computer science but i guess it doesn't have to be but maybe it feels like it could or should be can you talk about what universal design for learning means um in in your field in particular and then maybe kind of bring that also into your teaching sure um i want to highlight actually something that uh lisa said earlier that when we design uh, things like Canvas, we want to have our user in mind. And that's exactly what we do when we're programming, when we're creating software. You wanna have that end user in mind from the very beginning. Uh, that's one of the first steps to designing uh, software. And we actually explicitly talk about this in some of our classes as well. Uh, and we're trying to teach our students to think of the end user just the same way that we as faculty are trying to think of our student users uh, of our class. And uh, one of the 
ideas that kind of helps others to feel more connected with it because they might not have a differing ability that's obvious, you know, uh, but we have these like charts that describe different senses and how they might be uh, disabled or, or altered in some way that could affect someone's ability to interact with technology. Um, so like, for example, uh, touch. So that could be somebody who maybe has lost an arm. So they only have one hand to work with. How are they interacting with technology? But it could also be something temporary. Maybe they just broke their arm or maybe they are uh, a parent with a small child. So they've only got one arm that they can possibly use. Right. And so it's not like it's a permanent disability all the time. This is for a variety of users. Right. But there's different things that we can do that would help anybody that's in that situation. Um, and so we're kind of taking it. We use that approach uh, in addition to just uh, what we think is best for for all of our users. And we we understand that not everything can be made for every single type of person, but you still strive for that. Right. Like, I love it when <laughs> when a student brings one of the forms from DSPS to me and I read it, and I'm like, oh, we're good. We don't need to change anything yeah. because the class is just set up in a way that it's accessible to all these different kinds of people. Hello. Once again, Sean and I will attempt to explain a topic that could fill an hour long workshop in less time than it takes a student to upload an assignment to Canvas. We call this the two, the two minute day. Today, we tackle the principles of accessibility. Here we go. What is accessible? Nothing initially. Well, some things are. Crawling? Uh, for some people. Using the DMV's website. You're kidding. How about cartoon watching and eating cake? What? How about thinking? Yeah, that's probably true, but neither of us are cognitive scientists or even philosophers, so let's go back to the cake example. Yes. Have you ever traveled out of the country and ordered cake, or have you been to a friend or partner's family reunion where What's you got- family reunion? Family reunion. Cool, you're at the reunion, and of course there's food, but you may not know the protocol for eating, what to use, how to mix things together to get your plate set, right? Yeah, like what to do when the bananas are next to the peppers. Right, what if there's banana peppers? What's your point? Things have to be arranged in a certain way so you can learn how to construct your plate. Just think poor. Like I don't have money? No, like P-O-U-R, perceivable, operable, understandable, and robust. Perceivable? Yes, you know where the food is, you know how the line is gonna flow, and you can navigate the serving table. Then we have operable. Oh, I know, how to use the tongs, chopsticks, my hands, plates, bowls, and whatever else there may be. Understandable. Not yet. No, understandable, like you know when to eat, whether you talk or you just stuff your face, do you wait for elders or the kids are surfers, or is it a free-for-all? Got it. Once you can see all the options, the non-dairy, veggie, spicy, sweet, and learn to use the utensils or find the people serving, then you can really fix yourself a plate with robust flavors. You see, joining our classroom is much like visiting a friend's family reunion. Perceivable? Making sure our learners can access our content, providing alternative text for visuals, captioning on videos, understanding color contrast, operable? Clear structure with properly marked headers, creating meaningful links, giving students enough time, understandable? Having clear directions and examples ensure a predictable and consistent experience. Use plain text when you can. Curry, how do we get robust? Start with the accessibility checkers in Canvas, but go further. Test that your course equips students to be agents who feel confident and capable contributing their perspectives and knowledge. 
And if all else fails, ask your auntie Liesel. She's a professional accessibility chef. She'll get you right. Yes, do that. <laughs> and that was the two, the two minute game. Yeah, right on. So how about with your own teaching and, and maybe your own process, Catherine, what are you looking at to know, ah, I got to adjust this or I have to open this up or I have to vary how the students interact with this? What, what are just maybe some hallmarks or some for instances about your process? Yeah, um, I think it, it really does just take time yeah. and some like particular experiences where you're like, oh, that that is not working well. And you learn from it. And then the next time you have a new course that you're creating, you remember all of those other incidents and and you just plan for them. Right. Um, I mean, I've been teaching for 12 years. And so I, I've got a lot of those experiences built up. Um, so, for example, I had a student last semester who uh, was deaf and, you know, we are working on computers so there's a lot of visual but there's also a lot of group activities in my courses which i love i want group activities but now we have an interpreter in the room and trying to just like figure out where everyone's going to sit how that interpreter is going to work in a small group setting and and we figured it out right uh we we had to just kind of arrange the computers in a particular way um and there was just a lot more pointing so but those sorts of things where you're like, okay, so now I'm presented with this, this new differing ability that I need to work with yeah. uh, and how can I improve things? And so, you know, just going through and, and checking that all of my videos had captions, you know, things like that. And, and if they didn't finding alternatives or, or writing the captions for it. Yeah. Um, and it's really just having those experiences that helps you prepare for the next time to make sure that it's already done ahead of time uh, from the very beginning. So you don't have to like go back and change anything. We talk about accessibility in terms of how to access the content. So as students, we can access the content, but in the web world and congratulations, everyone who is using canvas, uh, you have become a website designer. Yeah. <laughs> so welcome. <laughs> uh, now that you are a website designer, uh, there are a couple of elements in terms of access, like literal access. Um, so this is important, especially now more than ever, because we're all forced to go and teach and learn online. Um, if we do not make, create accessible content uh, for our students, they will not be able to physically access. So note that many of our students, our DSPS students, have to travel to school in order to get that accommodation. So when we build right from the get-go, uh, we have those links that are descriptive, make sure we have headings. Um, and we'll, I'll go ahead and share this, uh, the link. It's a new uh, public Canvas accessibility course uh, that I created uh, that will help you uh, learn about the basics of accessibility, what you can do today. And it's absolutely free and open to the public. I do want to shift gears here a little bit because when when talking about equity in the online space, the conversation tends to go in the way of accessibility, which is really important. However, you know, you said it earlier, Lisa, talking about like students are coming to our classroom from different cultures, different backgrounds, different situations, and UDL could be something that is used to address those kind of things. So I'm thinking like for Catherine in the computer science classroom that historically and even today really 
lacks a lot of diversity in terms of uh, race and gender. How do frameworks like UDL help you and, and help to address the, um, the representation issues in computer science specifically? In the, I, for the computer science classroom, there's a general lack of representation, like you said, uh, for people of color and women. And some of the things that we've been trying to do to increase those numbers are change the way we, we design our classroom interactions so that it's not just sitting there at the computer the entire time, uh, which relies heavily on prior knowledge of using a computer, um, which actually, it's interesting. I was just talking to somebody uh, recently that they kind of expected all of our students to be really proficient at using desktop computers mm -hmm. or, or laptops. And I pointed out that that's not what I'm seeing in our 101 class because a lot of students are using devices, they're using technology, but they're using their phones, right? Or maybe a tablet. And so the way that you interact with that is so different than the way that you might create PDF documents or um, record videos that can be shared in Canvas, uh, getting things from one device to another, right? Because on their phone, they just take a picture, immediately send it off in one swipe. And that's, it's done differently on a computer. Mm -hmm. And so they are coming, like, uh, like we were talking about before, from all different places, right? And we don't necessarily know what their experience is when they come into the classroom. And so some of that is about uh, the equity concerning their previous experiences and, and how that affects when they come into the classroom. And, if their only experience is just here, sit at this computer and start typing code, that's going to be too much. It's going to be overwhelming for a lot of students uh, with or without a disability, right? And so what we're doing is trying to do more uh, interaction, like I said, with like groups, uh, having students work together that way and being very intentional on what those assignments are and how the group members are interacting and actually at the beginning kind of sort of training students to work with one another so that that really strong you know uh, student that had maybe ap computer science isn't overtaking the others and making them feel like they don't have anything to contribute uh, which is often why our students of color and our female students will will drop out is because they just feel kind of pushed to the side sometimes. And so we're, we're trying to be really intentional about how we design those interactions so that everybody can learn from each other because that's the, the key and why we really want to have equitable classes and, and to have all of these different kinds of people getting these degrees and getting these jobs is because we need their ideas. Yeah. We need somebody who has a disability to be designing software programs because they know what that interaction is gonna be like, right? They experience it. They're just more aware of how other people with, with differing abilities are going to be interacting with things. And, and that's why we need their ideas, right? And, and all of the other experiences that they can bring to the table. And the same with uh, people of different races, right? They are coming from a different experience and they will have different knowledge that they bring to the table and, and things like uh, one of the hot topics is algorithmic bias, 
-hmm. And so if we have people from different backgrounds designing this software, we'll get less of this unintentional algorithmic bias that's happening. Uh, and so we're, we're really trying to bring all of these different people to that table uh, to discuss how we can make all of our, our software more accessible and, you know, and fair as yeah. well. And so Catherine, what you're talking about is not just simply like changing the images in my course so that there's more people of color represented or like, you know, just kind of these sort of like toke, the tokenism, right? What you're talking about is, is pluralizing practitioners, like pluralizing what we consider knowledge, what, what we consider ways of experiencing, ways of expressing. And, and you see real value in that in your, in your fields, right? Exactly. The products that are gonna be created, right? And, and exactly. Yeah. Can I jump in with like a specific example because I'm very yeah. familiar with Catherine's work. I, I, so like this idea of closing equity gaps, I feel like it's not just the instructor's responsibility. And, and sometimes in the classroom, I really appreciate when instructors use that time to create projects and assignments that help students contribute to that as well, to, to closing these gaps. And the one that comes to mind for me is the uh, addressing food insecurity with the food pantry project that you had with, with your students a couple semesters back. Totally. Can you describe the process of creating a, you know, a, a unique kind of uh, project like that and the assessment for it? Because I feel like it does blend those, those UDL principles while also giving them that real world experience to contribute to something very local like uh, the food pantry at Miracosta. Yeah, sure. Um, we started off that semester with identifying a need on campus and the food pantry needed a better way to keep track of the, the students that were coming in and what they were taking um, and, and checking in each time that they visited the food pantry. And that was something that we could do in our, in our one-on-one class. So the nice thing about it was that it wasn't something where you needed to have, you know, several years of computer science classes under your belt before you could make the program. We were doing it in our very intro, first ever learning computer science course. And they were able to do this. And uh, we started off by just kind of presenting this problem came in to kind of talk to our students as the client and we were trying to set up as, as Lisa was saying earlier this authentic learning experience where this is a real person this is a client who wants software from you and trying to kind of show the students what the software development cycle looks like through something that we felt was meaningful right uh, it and they learned the first I guess quarter of the semester was just learning about the food pantry, what their needs were for the, the program. And so that's where they got that perspective on food insecurity. And some students in our class had been to the food pantry several times and, and they could share that experience of what it was like to check in. And so it was useful throughout the design process because they'd be like, oh yeah, this part's really annoying. I hate it when I have to do this. Um, and so they could bring that knowledge in, which was great. Uh, and then all of the students started, you know, actually going to the food pantry more because we had gone there as a class and they were like, oh, okay, this is all right. We can, we can do this. So that was kind of the beginning phase. And then they uh, split up into groups to, to do the next phase of the 
a project which is design. And so students that were more artistic could bring in that piece of themselves into the, into the project uh, to design what the, the site was gonna look like, right? When a student comes to the food pantry, what are they gonna be presented with on this tablet to check in? And so again, that's using these like different abilities and different strengths combining into this project. Uh, and, and as we progressed through, so then we started building and, and testing it out and again, presenting to the class, they had to kind of split up into different teams and then the, the different teams presented to the course, uh, to the whole class, sorry. And, and then we picked like, oh, we really like this part. We really like this part and we put them together. And so it was really a great experience for them to, to see this whole process, right? Of refining it wasn't the very first idea that we took we're like yes let's just go with that idea but there's this refinement process that goes into everything that we do and so they can see this as a potential career be like oh i don't have to get it right the first time i can get feedback and i can improve and i can make it better and that i think is is an important lesson in itself right so there's all of these different things coming together into a project like this and and sure, it takes work. And some of it is a little bit scary because when we started, I had no idea where I was going to go. Right. Because the students got to pick, like they got to choose what path they wanted to take to solve this problem. Um, and so that can be scary for a teacher, right? Like you, you have this list of things I need to cover in this course. Is it going to happen? But it happens, right? You can just ask the right questions to, to get them to go into this particular uh, content that you needed them to. Totally. So yeah, I thought that was great. She's developing leaders in her class. Um, and this is very instrumental right from the very beginning. How do we help our students get into group collaboration and accept it and, and you know embrace it? Um, just to touch a little bit, uh, there are some cultures that heavily rely on group collaboration, very tight-knit communities. So it's kind of interesting when we move into the on or into the instructional world, in the past, we might have had more singular type of work. Students have to work in their own lanes. There's not a lot of group collaboration. Um, so that, that sort of culture, that inequity there is, is a little bit disjointed. Um, so now that we could move into these group collaborations, um, we're, as, as instructors, we become, say, for example, in this Pogel activity that I was in, um, they're designed to be self-managed teams, right, where, uh, where the instructor is more of the facilitator of learning rather than the source of information. Right on. Well, thank you so much, Liesl. Thank you so much, Catherine, for joining us. Great conversation. Appreciate y'all. Thanks Thank for being you. on. Having us. I know. So I really didn't appreciate the uh, example of me drinking a heavy night of drinking and how that all goes. But I did appreciate the cake example. Definitely would prefer the cake over the alcohol. Um, so. Well, I know it helps me to understand things when it's at your expense, Sean. So <laughs> I, I appreciate you playing the role. <laughs> <laughs> I, I, I'm here for something. What, what our viewers couldn't see was my face when that example was being given. I'm like, why, Liesl? Why, why are we going there? <laughs> um, 
but yeah, <laughs> and I guess maybe there was some intentionality behind that. And being intentional about our designs to promote student interaction and collaboration was a big part of this episode. What would you get out of that from the conversation, Curry? And I know you do a lot of things as well as I do and our colleagues do to try to promote more engagement in this online space. Uh, how did this inform your teaching? So uh, yeah, uh, Pogel for me, um, this, this, you know, what, what really I thought at first was going to be like another like Flipgrid or the little whatever the tools are that were constantly, hey, use this instead. Um, mm -hmm. But that was actually a, a pedagogical approach, right? Um, and that, so just number one, that approach to teaching that decenters our authority, it really, you know, empowers students and, 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 and centers collaboration. That's super exciting to me. Um, but I think what also helped me in, 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 in um, um, Liesl bringing up Pogel, I started to think about how pedagogy, course design, and you know, content, um, how these things become more discrete for me. Um, and that helps me to think about where I can practice equity, right? Um, you know, equity and, and accessibility in course design, equity and accessibility in content and in activities. And then how my pedagogy then kind of freights itself to those things that for me, at least it just it, it, that I, I don't feel as overwhelmed like I've got to put this everywhere. Right. So just kind of distinguishing pedagogy, course design and then the content of the course. Um, yeah, I find that that helpful. Yeah, it makes me think of not just student equity, but faculty equity as well, because when we think of the need for people with different experiences and different backgrounds, of course, you know, we should start with a conversation about how that plays out racially uh, with different ethnic groups, different cultural backgrounds, gender, sexualities. In this online experience that we're having right now in 2020, we also got to think of the the diversity in people's uh, knowledge, skills, and abilities in, in, you know, Liesl said we're all web designers now. I think that can be a little bit, not just intimidating, but downright scary for people, yeah? Yeah, yeah, yeah totally. I mean, there's there's so much expectation placed on that, right? Like, I, not only do I have to make this make sense as a curriculum, but I've got to like look fill in the blank, right? Pretty or cool or whatever that, that you know, my experience with web design might be. Um, yeah, I think that that can be really um, stifling for teachers. And, you know, and, and this is a larger conversation, but it is, you know, about instructional design and instructional design work and, and, and the role that LISO plays and how important that is um, for um, faculty to have access to. Um, so that's the larger conversation, right? Like, how do we get more access? Um, right. And the design aspect of it, it could be tough for us. So you and I have taught online for quite a while and, yeah. and you know, there's an opportunity to become stagnant there, right? And, and we have our designs that we're like, oh, this is really good for right now. And we're tinkering as we go along, as we do in any kind of class. Uh, but, but when this accessibility thing comes around and when um, equity in terms of racial, ethnic, uh, uh, cultural, those, those elements come into play, there's a whole rethinking, which again is an intimidating process because, you know, yes, it's nice when you start from scratch, you're building up, right? This is the ideal, like as you're building, you make it all accessible and you infuse these equity-minded practices beyond accessibility as you're creating it. But when you have something created, it's harder to let go of that and say, now I need to, you know, 
break some of this down and infuse some of these other things in. Yeah. No doubt. No doubt. I mean, not only does, cause it takes forever to build that stuff, but then it's all chained together usually, right? Like if you've created, whether you've created modules or some other kind of uh, uh, pedagogical arc, right? It's if I take out that piece, uh, it doesn't quite work as well as it did before. So I've actually got to revise this whole thing, right? Um, yeah, and then you throw in UDL and it's like, now I need to add different ways of assessing this. Now I need to add different ways of presenting this. That's right. Now I need to do the headers, right? And yeah. if you don't do that as you go, it's like doing the job more than twice is what it feels like, right? And that's the workload issue that we keep coming back to. Right. Does it make it worth it in the end? Probably, certainly, yes. Yeah. Yeah. However, we're also missing in, in this time those, those water cooler spaces for equity. We talked about that and water cooler spaces for ideas, right? Like I can meet you in the hallway, say this happened in my class today. You tell me, hey, this is how I handled a similar experience. And then I put my own style onto what you, your technique and maybe that works out for me, maybe it doesn't. And we don't have that same kind of trial, error, immediate feedback, collaboration with colleagues in the hallway that we had before and and so we could feel even more siloed and that could lead to a feeling of like i don't i have no idea if i'm doing things right or wrong and i have no one to ask no that's right that's right and so i think that's why it's i mean whew, one thing is it's important that this is temporary right like this this will pass and so and like everything we've always said about teaching remotely is we we need to give ourselves as well as our students you know uh, empathy and grace um, for teaching in this time. Right. So UDL, these ideals of um, this might be the time to plan. This might not be the time for really, really building, right? So that's number one. But number two, I, I, I think what you're talking about makes me think, re reminds me of how important it is for us to have a feedback loop built in with our students, right? And that can be during the semester, um, a, a quick check-in can be at the end of the semester, which can inform how I revise the course going forward. All of that stuff, I think, is super helpful. And, and I, going back just really quickly to the pedagogy course design content, what both Catherine and Liesl made me think about was when we design, we should be designing for all students, all students. But when we teach, we teach the student, right? We teach, right. you know, uh, uh, this person, this individual, that individual. And so if you have that feedback loop and you're realizing, oh, gosh, the way I set this up, it's confusing to a lot of people. That's actually fine because I can then create an announcement for my students and then I can work with those students, right? That student, right? In that discrete semester, I can design for all students later. Right now I can just teach this group and that individual. So that, that's helpful for me. That's where I think I practice equity, right? You know what it is, Curry? Your course is not your class. The yeah. structure of your course is not the class that you teach. And what I mean by that is the house that you build doesn't make it your home. What makes it your home are the experiences you have in there, the things that go on over the years in that space. The structure of it facilitates those experiences and may enhance or, or, or detract from those experiences, but that is not what your home is, is the brick and mortar and, and, and the stucco and, and the windows. That is not your home. That's your house. Yeah. And so class is you. So when we think about academic freedom and, and the, the 
most beautiful part about our job, which is the connections with the students, that's our teaching. The structure just allows us to do that in a way that everybody makes sure they can get into that house, use everything in that house so that we can then make it into a home. Absolutely. That's a great, great metaphor. I like it. That was on the spot just right now. Yeah, you're see, there, so at your expense, I learn things. When you're at your best, I learn things. It's all it's all of you, Sean. That that helps me. <laughs> truth be told, <laughs> truth be told, Curry's writing a lot of these scripts, so he's putting the structure up. I'm just trying to make it a home. <laughs> uh, oh, there you go. There you go. Perfect. <laughs> <laughs> Let's hear from the students next. That'll be a great conversation to see if it is really homey in there or if that's a place they would rather not be. Yeah, I'm really looking forward to that episode. That's gonna be great. Thanks, Sean. Right, cool. This episode is supported by the Miracosa Foundation's Innovation Grant. The Save Topics podcast is produced and engineered by Kelly Barnett. James Garcia handles promotion, student recruitment, and research. You can find us on Twitter, Instagram, and savetopics.podbean.com. Find us on Apple and Spotify. Please rate and subscribe. Thanks for listening.